I'll invite you to turn now with me to Genesis chapter 12. The beginning of chapter 12 marks a significant shift in the book of Genesis away from is often referred to as primeval history, to the patriarchs, to this account of Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then, of course, some of Jacob's sons as well. Uh, but basically, the, the story slows down quite a bit here. So we've come through many years here from creation until Abram through chapters 1 through 11. And now for the rest of the book till chapter 50, we're really mainly covering the lives of three generations of Abraham, Isaac, uh, and, and Jacob. And so the, this is a, 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 a point at the book in which many people will, will note a very um, significant difference, and some people will try to drive a wedge between chapters 1, and 11, 1 through 11 and the rest of the book, uh, as if maybe chapters 1 through 11 are maybe not real history or something like that. But as we have been seeing as we've gone through it, um, the continuity between the first 11 chapters and the following, uh, however many it is, through to chapter 50, math's not good, uh, uh, the continuity is clearly there based on the outline of the book. As Remember, if we look at these sections that begin with these are the generations of, we're reminded that this book is concerned with a particular offspring to come, and that carries through the primeval history of chapters 1 through 11, and the rest of what we will see here in chapters 12 through 50. So we've been tracing this descent from Adam through to Noah, and then from Noah through to Terah, and particularly Terah's son, Abram, as Genesis continues to narrow in on a particular family and upon a particular individual, a particular offspring, namely the seed of the woman who would be the Savior and today we're going to look at the calling and the faith of Abram. So we're going to be in verses 1 to 7. Uh, we see in here God call Abram and Abram's response. And this individual, this man Abram, who also will be later renamed Abraham. Again, I'll use Abram and Abraham interchangeably, I'm sure, throughout the sermon. But Abraham stands as a very unique individual in the Bible. And I trust you understand that he's a dominant figure in the scripture, he's in a he receives this this call and these promises from God. This is a unique thing that God does with this man, with with Abram and telling him to go. And, and we'll look at that in just a moment. He's a dominant figure throughout the scriptures. In fact, when our Lord came to earth and walked the earth as man, there was arguments. He, he had an argue, he had arguments with his opponents. If you remember from John chapter eight, for example, uh, over this very issue of what constitutes a true son of Abraham. And so they were still arguing about who is a rightful uh, descendant and recipient of the blessings to Abraham in that day, many years after the life of Abraham. He was still being appealed to. And so we see, of course, that the promised offspring to come is going to come through Abram's line. We've been discussing this. We've seen this even last time we talked about that. But there's more to what God says to Abram as well. There's more to what he promises. He also promises land, and he promises a nation to come from him as well. Additionally, we see not only the mystery of Christ being advanced in these things, that is the, the storyline of redemption and who is this child going to be and when will he come and so on, 
But we also see an example of faith and obedience in Abraham that is instructive for all time. Paul will call Abraham the man of faith. He's like paradigmatic of what it means to possess faith in Scripture. And so I hope as we go through this, we're going to capture something of all of this. Uh, So we have here, and and this is something as we go through Genesis and as we work through really, I think, maybe every narrative uh, book in the Bible, it's, it's advancing. We have a tendency to read it and say, to try to pull out a moral lesson or story or something like that, and then we can just apply that and on we go. Um, but the, the story is advancing something greater than that. It's telling us about what God is doing to save mankind. And as we've seen, even with Noah, for example, when Noah sinned after the ark, and we think that's such an odd story, is drunkenness and, and Ham and how he reacts and and we would, could pull the lessons out of there, don't get drunk and don't dishonor your, your parents. And of course, that's true, but is that really the point of that story there in the midst? We're just going to suddenly drop in and, and say, by the way, drunkenness and dishonoring parents is bad, and that's really the main, the main thing. Well, of course, no. And we, we talked about that when we were in that, uh, looking at that story, that that event was an occasion in which there was this prophecy from Noah about the fact that this Messiah was going to come through the line of Shem and that it was actually Ham's offspring, Canaan, who would be cursed. And of course, there's major implications for that as the scriptures would continue. And even as we will see today, as Abram has promised this land of Canaan. And so we have then, when we look at these stories and as we're going through Genesis, this, this big picture overview, if you will, this this uh, biblical theology, this thread of God has made this promise and we're seeing how this promise develops and the promise is ultimately about Christ and about what God is doing to redeem sinners in and through his son. But we also find in there certainly examples to us uh, that are immediately applicable. Again, when we did look at Noah we did talk about the matter of drunkenness. Clearly, we ought not to, to follow in his footsteps on that point. There's warning there for us. And so likewise, similar when we get to this account of Abram, we have a very unique situation in which God is advancing the storyline of redemption, if you will. And we want to see it and understand it for its uniqueness. I am not Abram. You are not Abram. We are different people. The promises are not exactly the same that are given to us. Um, We see this as the promise of the Messiah. We are to believe in that Messiah who would come from Abram's line. So we have this this big picture thing going on. But we also see in Abram, certainly, an example, a model to follow, namely of what it is to believe, of what a life of faith looks like. And so we want to try to, it's not always easy, but we want to try to capture both these things, the big picture of what's going on and also um, the application of of, of what it means to be someone who believes God, trusts him, and lives that out. So, we'll try. So we're going to read here verses 1 to 7 of chapter 12, and then we'll get into this. Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. We're going to begin by looking at the call of Abram. The call of Abram, which we see in the first three verses of chapter 12. So last week, if you remember, we did talk a little bit about verse 1. But let's look at it again here and read it again. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Uh, Last year when we were finishing up chapter 11, we did note here uh, from verse 1 that there's a question about the best way to understand uh, where it says there that the Lord said to Abram. Uh, If you remember, in Acts chapter 7 verse 2, Stephen tells us before he was martyred there, That God had appeared to Abram before living in Haran, while he was still living in Ur. So we might read chapter 11 and then chapter 12 and think, well, this this call of Abram uh, just occurs here at the beginning of chapter 12, and there was nothing prior to this. But Stephen tells us that's not the case. The Lord had already appeared to Abram prior to even leaving Ur with his father and going to Haran. And so it may be that this is better translated as the Lord had said to Abram, meaning prior to all this, prior to the death of Haran, uh, prior to even living, or sorry, prior to the death of Terah, his father, prior to living in Haran, uh, he had already received this call. And this would then be the explanation of why it is that after his father Terah died in the land of, of Haran, that Abram then picked up and, and, and carried on his journey towards Canaan. The command that he's given here is to go from your country or from your land and your kindred and your father's house. Now, that's a, a significant command. That's a significant thing for Abram to have to do. Uh, this is not simply you know, leaving your father's house and getting an apartment across town because you should have done that years ago. This is not, it's not something that sort of common that we would, we would do or we could imagine somebody doing. Especially if we consider that the Lord appeared to Abram while he was still in Ur, this would mean, as he's told to leave this land and his father's house, this would mean leaving his family's religion behind. You recall they were a family of idol worshipers originally. Leaving them all behind leaving behind his security as well, his family. He'd, he'd be at risk of looking bad by leaving his family behind. That Abram, he's selfish. He just took off and left because he claims the Lord has told him something. He, he would look bad. How's this going to look? It'd be a difficult thing to do. It's a big ask. And then it says, go to the land that I will show you. So initially, he's, he doesn't even know where he's going. I'll show you where you're going to go, but just start going. That's what God's telling him here. But Hebrews 11 verse 8 confirms this to us. It says, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So 
Leave everything you know, leave your family, leave your homeland, leave your kindred, and just start going to a land that I'll show you at some point. Notice initially, there isn't even the promise he's going to get that land. Go and I'll show you the land. Leave everything, trust me, I'll show you where to go. And then it continues in verse 12, that's the command, and then he receives promises in verse 2, sorry. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So the Lord promises then to Abram that he's going to make him into this great nation. Now this is a man who has, at this point, no children. He is 75 years old, in verse 4 we see that. And at this stage in history, this is getting to be a little old to start having children, right? So we've seen earlier that men and women did live longer and it wasn't uncommon to have children in old age, but we're getting to that point where this is becoming much less common to where when Sarah finally does have Isaac, this is a laughable matter because it seems absurd that someone of her age would would have a child. And so he's received this promise of a great nation, but he's getting old and he has no children. All of this is part of this initial calling of Abram. Now, when we consider the promises that God makes to Abraham, we need to think about these things in a couple of different ways. Now, I just want to say we'll be looking at this um, more than just today. So the promises that we see that are made to Abram here today in chapter 12, we're going to see these things again in chapter 15 and again in chapter 17 as well, where these promises are formed into a covenant that God will make with Abram as he renames him Abraham. Um, so we'll, we'll be looking at, we'll, we'll say more about all of these things uh, in coming weeks. But we need to think about the promises God made to Abram in at least two ways. On the one hand, there is the physical, earthly promises that God makes to him. And there is also the spiritual, heavenly promises as well. All of these things are encompassed here in what God promises to Abram, even though the heavenly promises may not be as obvious to us, at least initially. So, so he is, Abram will become the father of a physical nation, the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, who would dwell in the earthly land of Canaan. And, Scripture tells us, Abram is also the spiritual father of all who would believe in the Lord as he believed. The spiritual father of what Peter calls a holy nation. A people from every physical nation across the world who dwell together in the heavenly city. The spiritual promises that are encompassed in what God says and promises here to Abraham become more evident and more clear as the Bible unfolds. The Hebrews chapter 11, for example, what we read is where we see it perhaps most clearly, that there was clearly something beyond even the physical land of Canaan that Abraham did understand sufficiently that there was a city beyond earthly Canaan that his sights were set upon. We're told that very explicitly in Hebrews 11. And so again, what we need to do when we come to Scripture is allow the Bible to interpret the Bible for us. We have 
the New Testament inspired by God, an inspired commentary on the life of Abraham and on the promises that were made to him. He was looking even beyond Canaan itself. And so you have both of these realities going on. You do have a promise of an earthly nation, a physical nation, of of a physical land upon this earth. And they are important promises given to Abraham and to his offspring. But they are also pointing towards something that is even greater, a heavenly land and spiritual promises. And this is what we often refer to as typology, that you have something that is picturing something even greater. That God is giving to Abraham a, a nation of people and a, a land to live in. And all of this is important in and of itself for those individuals. It has its own significance, but it is also providing a picture of something, an even greater reality that is to come. And and Paul talks about this as uh, shadow versus substance in Colossians. We see that. So again, these earthly promises were important. The land, the physical land mattered, but they were also typological They're pointing to even greater heavenly realities. And that's why the author of Hebrews is saying that even Abraham was looking forward and looking ahead to something even greater. That Sarah, she's mentioned as one who possessed faith and had the power to conceive. And yet it says these did not receive the things promised to them. Well, Sarah did receive the offspring promised to her. Isaac was born to her. But there's something even greater going on as well that they're still all looking forward to. That even though it's not perfectly clear how precisely this will all work out, they did have a sufficient understanding that there's more to this than just the earthly matters. And I think for Abram, we can safely say that some of that understanding that he would have had which we're told he had in Hebrews 11, was tied to the promise that through him, the world would be blessed. The families of the earth would be blessed. That Abram understood in some measure that the promise originally made in Genesis 3.15 of a savior was going to come to pass through his line. So let's continue verse two again, the end of verse two. I will bless you, the Lord says to Abram, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God will bless Abram, he says, and he will also then make Abram a blessing to others. And likewise, those who bless Abram, God says he will bless, and those who decide they're going to dishonor Abram, God says he will curse. And we do see this. We see this work itself out in the life of Abraham and his physical descendants. We see, for example, we see it in the likes of of Balak. If you remember this story, king of Moab, and he's trying to pay and commission Balaam to curse the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And Balaam, try though he may, uh, the Lord makes it so that all he can spout is blessing upon the people of Israel. We will see this in Genesis. In the case of Abimelech and Abraham's relation to Abimelech, we'll see it with Laban, we'll see it with Potiphar, we'll see it with multiple pharaohs of Egypt. Abraham and his descendants are going to have God as their help, God is saying here, against their enemies. 
And of course, the ultimate blessing that is pointed to here, that Abraham will be to others, is more than anything that any physical nation on earth can do for another, as good as that could be. At the end of verse 3, it says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here is the promise of a worldwide blessing that is to come through Abraham's line. And again, in light of what we've been looking at through Genesis, we can understand that what would bless the people and the families of the earth the most, but to have this promised offspring to come who would overturn the curse that man is under for his sin, that would deal with the root issue at hand here, the intention of man's heart that is only evil from his youth, the one who would deliver human beings from their sin. And indeed, this is precisely what the New Testament tells us God was promising to Abraham. It is in Abraham's seed, in the offspring that would come eventually from his line. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ, that this blessing would go out to all nations. So we see it in a a couple of obvious places in the New Testament, including Galatians 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, non-descendants of Abraham, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's saying this gospel that is preached, that Jesus himself has commissioned the church to go take into all the world, this is what God had promised would come through Abraham's line. This is that blessing to all nations. Uh, Peter, likewise, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 3 in the temple at Solomon's portico, in verse 25, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. He's preaching to Jews. Saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, that is the son, God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, the promise goes first to the Jews, but that the implication is then it's going to go out into all the, all the world to bless all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth, just as God had promised to Abraham. And indeed, the eternal Son of God has come to earth, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, who was a descendant of Abraham, according to the flesh. And Jesus has come, and he has taken up the obligations of man. He has paid the penalty that God's law demands against mankind for our sins. He has come to deal with the root issue that we are seeing worked out in Genesis, the intention of man's heart being evil from his youth, the curse that we are under on account of our sins, and he has dealt with it by becoming a curse for us, by substituting himself in on behalf of sinners to take the the wrath of God that we deserve, to have it poured out upon himself on the cross to wipe out the debt that we have owing on account of our sins. And also he has come 
to earn in his perfect life the righteousness that we need in order to enter glory. And all of the benefit of this, the forgiveness, the wiping out of our debt of sin, and the accounting of righteousness that is credited to us, all of this is a gift that God gives to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever man or woman turns from their sin, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, everywhere that occurs, they are receiving this blessing that was promised to Abraham. The man, Abram, blessed others around him, as did the physical nation of Israel, at least at times. But it is the spiritual blessing of redemption in Christ Jesus that is ultimately pointed to here. That's what Peter and Paul are both telling us in the New Testament. It is in this way that all the peoples of the earth are blessed through Abraham. As Christ is redeeming and calling to himself people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, as we are told also in Revelation. And so what we have here in Genesis 12 and verse 3 particularly is the gospel of Jesus Christ in seed form. That's what Paul is telling us. It's the gospel preached beforehand. Now, all of these things are simply stated here to Abram. He simply has here the word of God to go on. He couldn't even look out at this point when he receives this call with physical eyes upon the land of Canaan initially. Again, he was to leave all and go, Hebrews eleven eight says, not even knowing where he was going initially. In all of these promises that he's given, he is to take God at his word here, to believe God will fulfill these things and do what he says he will do. Sometimes we, I think, can think, Christians can think, that others who have gone before us have had it easier than us. We look at people in the Bible, characters in the Bible, and we might think that, well, if only the Lord had just spoken to me audibly like he did to Abram, well, then that would be a lot easier to believe and it would be a lot easier to, uh, to then live in light of that faith because I, I heard his, his, his audible voice. But I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that that would make trusting God any easier. Paul, or sorry, Peter, seems to make this point in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 when he talks about how he heard the voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration calling Jesus his son. And yet he then refers to the prophetic word that is even more fully confirmed to us, namely the prophetic word that has been passed down to us in Scripture. We have every much a right to trust God's word to us, though it comes to us in this form, in written form, than what Abram would have had when he, however it was, that God spoke to him and gave him this call. It strikes me, as I said, that what God calls Abram to do here is a tall task. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, calls this a trying precept when God tells him to go in this way. It wouldn't be an easy thing for him to do necessarily. 
And yet, as much as the situation is unique for Abram, there are similarities to God's general call to faith and to discipleship that is upon every man and woman. And in this way, Abraham's call is a paradigm of God's external call. Consider what the New Testament teaches us. When the gospel is preached, sinners are called to venture themselves entirely upon Jesus Christ by faith. We have the word of God that is promising to us redemption, promising us forgiveness of our sins. If we would look away from ourselves, if we would acknowledge our sinfulness before God, not place any hope in ourselves, but look solely to Jesus Christ and place all of our hope in him. We're told we are promised then eternal life, that that's our gift now. We are told that if we believe that, that we stand justified before God Almighty and that we're to entrust ourselves to him even in the face of death, that when we die, we will not be judged by God, but rather welcomed into eternity with God. And we're to take this on faith that God has truly spoken thus. And that God is a God who will keep his word, that we can indeed count upon him to keep his word in the face of even something as terrifying, perhaps, as death. Christ himself taught us that we're to let nothing stand in the way of trusting Christ for this, trusting our God. Consider Matthew 10, 34. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. You hear even some resemblance of what God called Abram to do. Leave family and kindred and home and go. And then later in Matthew chapter 19, we have a promise. It says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Again, this is a promise put forth before us. It's not something that we can see. We can say, well, there's the house, there's that land, there's glory right there. I can see it with my eyes and so I'm going to just walk over there and take it. We can't touch it. We are called to trust that God will keep his word in these things. That these things are true, though we can't see it with physical eyes. And therefore, trusting God that these things are so, it'll be worth whatever trial we will face. Even if it does arise within our own household. At times, Jesus almost dissuaded people. Well, he did. It seems odd to us, but dissuaded people. 
from following him by telling those, for example, on one occasion, who hadn't really counted the cost of what it meant to believe him and be a disciple and follow him. He says, the, 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 the man says, I'll, I'll follow you. He says, oh, he doesn't say, oh, it's as if he says that. His answer is, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Like, have you thought about this? You think this will be easy? Nevertheless, his command is, follow me. Still, even so, even though the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We think of Peter, Andrew, James, John. What are they told? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They're told to put it down and follow me. And we read that they did that. They dropped their nets, they put it down, and immediately, we're told, follow the Lord Jesus, trusting him. In the gospel, we are promised eternal blessings. The blessings of eternal life, of a new creation, new heavens and earth, in which we will be with our Lord in righteousness. These blessings that are safe, and secure in Christ, kept in heaven, awaiting us, that can never be taken from us. This is what we are told. And we are called out of this world. We are told that persecutions and sufferings will come along with those blessings that he has laid up for us. In this life, we will face difficulty and trial. And we are told, count the cost. In Mark's account of the promise that believers will receive the blessing of brothers and sisters and lands for Christ's sake, there Christ adds, with persecutions. The call of Abram is unique, but there are parallels to today. The call to faith and to follow after the Lord is not simply a call to give a head nod to a few basic truths and facts about the Lord and about salvation. If Abram's faith were to prove true, then it would mean that he would be leaving Ur behind and be setting out into the unknown and eventually to Canaan. And if any would believe in Christ Jesus today and have your faith prove true, then it will mean following your Lord in a life of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So let's, let's continue moving on from the call to, to examine the faith of Abram a little more. In verse 4, we find Abram's response. What does he do? God calls him, go, promises him these blessings. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So again, his father has died. Terah has died. And Abram resumes here his pilgrimage. He takes his wife, the servants that they had acquired in Haran, 
Again, the Lord is already blessing the man. Lot, his nephew, goes with him and all that he had acquired. And Abram set out, we're told, as the Lord had told him. So how do we know that Abram believed God and trusted him? How could we test that? How would we know that that's true? He acted upon it. He went. He did that which the Lord called him to do. We see it in his actions. We see it in his life. Now we will see later in chapter 15 that Abraham, we are told there, was justified by his faith, by believing God, that it's credited to him as righteousness. And Paul, again, in Galatians, if you remember our time there, or just recall Galatians, is again saying that this is proof, again, that the saints throughout history have been justified by faith alone and not through their works. Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteousness. In chapter 15, we'll see that very clearly. But we also know that that faith that Abraham possessed by which he was justified wasn't just a bare faith. It wasn't just faith alone. It wasn't simply a head nod to a few certain facts. It revealed itself as true saving faith by the fruit that it bore. In this case, he went, he left and obeyed God. There is a connection between faith and works that must not be severed. It should not be cut apart, totally separated. However, faith and works must be distinguished. We can still distinguish between the two. They cannot be totally ripped apart and separated as if you can possess one without the other. But they are distinct things, and we need to keep that clear in our minds. Faith is believing. It's trusting God. Saving faith is a gift that God gives by which we receive. It's the means by which we receive God's word and trust the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the blessing of salvation. Is the instrument through which we receive that from God. And this justifying faith then is distinct from the works that we then do because of this faith. So perhaps it's something like maybe how we might think of courage. Courage is a, a quality that one will possess, but how would we know that they possess that quality? Well, because we'll see it in their courageous actions. It becomes evident in their actions. They act courageously because they possess this quality of courage. And it's similar, but we can rightly distinguish between courage and the act that arises from it. And so similar to faith. Faith will result in fruit being born in that individual. It's, you can't totally separate the two, but they are distinct matters. So Abram believed God, and we know that because he left Ur, and then again left Haran. And later, as we'll see in chapter 22, he would even be prepared to offer up his son Isaac. And as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, it's, it's such a, it seems like such an, well it is, such an odd story to us when we read this. 
He had already been told in chapter 21, Abram, Abraham, that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The promised line is going to be through Isaac. And then in chapter 22, offer him up. Well, those two things don't really fit. If the promise is to go through Isaac, then how is it that I can kill him? And this is why Hebrews is saying that such was Abraham's faith that he determined that, well, if that's what God tells me to do, then I do it. And I trust that he will raise this child from the dead because God has to keep his word that through Isaac shall my offspring be named. That's the logic of Hebrews 11. If you've ever looked at that and thought, where does the writer get that? It revealed and manifested that Abraham trusted the Lord. This is how we know he believed. This is James's point in the book of James, chapter 2. There was no dead faith. We can see that. Because it made a difference in the life of Abraham. If you have no fruit in your life, if you claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's really no real fruit to speak of, there's no real repentance or love of God, then it is not simply that you just need to try harder to make all those things happen, but you need to believe in the Lord. To examine the root of your professed faith In the New Testament, we are told to forsake all and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is not the act of forsaking all that is the instrument by which we are justified. It is faith that is the instrument and faith alone by which we are justified. We forsake, we, we pick up our cross and follow him because we believe. Because we understand that I have no other hope, that I need the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, his righteousness credited to my account. And we understand by faith that that is true and that this is therefore the greatest treasure that we could possibly possess. And so we see him say, count the cost and we say eternity in hell or temporary life with some discomfort and suffering, along with many other blessings as well, following our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, the choice is clear. We will pick up our cross. We are justified by faith alone, and yet that faith, again, is never alone. It will be accompanied by fruit, and that's what we see in Abram. Right? He went. He went not to earn the promises. He went believing God would keep his word. And it might have seemed crazy to many people, perhaps. We're not told here. But whatever he was prepared to risk, because he knew the one who called him. God will keep his word. He must because that's who he is. He is the faithful creator. 
And he came, ultimately, Abram did, to Canaan, where the Canaanites dwelt. The offspring of Ham are here in the land. And we're told in verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abram received another promise here, the promise of land, namely the land of Canaan for his offspring. That curse of Ham, or curse of Canaan, is going to come to pass eventually. The nation that's going to come, the great nation that the Lord is going to make through Abram, is going to dwell in this very land that Abram now stands in. And what's Abram's response to this? He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, it says. Which is another, we could also say, he worshipped God in a way that was appropriate in that time. He built an altar and offered sacrifices to the Lord. Abraham's faith is manifested here in his worship of God. He has left, left behind not only the land, but his idols, the idols of the past and of his family. And he now worships Yahweh, the Lord, the one true creator of all things. This is another clear evidence of true saving faith throughout the ages. That the one who possesses faith will then worship God. This is the result of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Peter writes to Christians in 1 Peter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim his excellencies. Romans 12:1. likewise, Paul, after expounding on the gospel over 11 chapters, says, In light of the mercies of God, brothers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, your very lives now are to be presented to God to the, and lived out to the praise of his glory. God's grace brings about a thankful worship in those that he saves. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God, when it appears to a man or to a woman and saves them, it trains us to renounce sin and to worship our God. While we continue in faith to await our blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord, our God and Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has given himself for us. If we believe that, that's what's coming. It changes things now. It changes the whole trajectory of one's life. Now, the fruit that's manifested in Abram's life is remarkable, I would say. And it points to God's sovereign grace. 
to overcome an idol worshiper's heart, to, to grant him faith that would, that by which he would then leave his home and be prepared to go and believe God and take him at his word on these things. But we also see that this was not a perfect obedience that Abram would render throughout his life. It was not a perfect worship that Abram rendered either. And we will see these things even beginning next week as Abram and Sarai will go down into Egypt. Again, there is a necessary connection between saving faith and a life that bears fruit. But this is, again, all the more reason why it's imperative and crucial to affirm that we are justified by faith apart from works because our fruit and our works will never be close to being perfect. We will never entirely measure up. It is true that God is, in his grace, is pleased with the obedience of his children. But we need to think of that rightly. It's not because the thing we've done is just so amazingly fantastic that it just moves God Rather, it is, it is more akin to a, a father whose three-year-old child brings him a picture or a painting that his child drew him. And the father delights in that thing, not because it's such a masterful work of art, but because this is my child whom I love, and I'm grateful because it's, it's, it's his effort to give this to me. And I love it because I love my child. This is more what it is like. When God takes pleasure in the obedience of his children. It's not that it is so untainted and pure and holy that God is forced to be so moved by it. And if we think that's the case, we don't understand the law of God. It demands perfection. Perfection in our attitude, in our motives, in every single way. Because that's what God is. He is perfect. And so we must affirm, for many reasons, it's the scriptural teaching, and for your own joy and progress in the faith, that one is justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone. And that the works that we then do because we believe, do not add anything to that justification we receive by faith. So that when we look at our lives, and we examine our lives, and maybe... As you examine your own heart, you think, okay, there's a connection between faith and fruit and obedience. And you examine your heart and you you say, that that, that fruit is not what I would wish it would be. But I do believe that my only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then what do you fall back on? That is the confession by which we are justified. That faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one I need. I have no other hope. Everything I see when I look internally looks pretty ugly right now. And I've been at this a long time. And it seems to me like I should have a lot more fruit and a lot more joyful obedience in my life. And I'm struggling and I see blackness when I look internally. And I'm struggling with these sins that I wish I still didn't struggle with. And there's a new one that I thought I was over. And now it's popped back up. And we struggle with that. If we don't distinguish faith from our works... 
we will become depressed and discouraged about it. And we will doubt our salvation. And so we need to come back and look again to this reality that it is Christ's work that justifies us. It is his righteousness that is ours by faith that we need. That the Bible says that God justifies the ungodly who don't work, he says in Romans 4, but who believe. That, that's not an excuse for any of our sinfulness. And I trust none of us would take it that way. We're distraught. We're upset by our sinfulness. But even that is a good sign of a true and living faith that you possess. Look to the world. They don't care. They don't care that their attitude's wrong about the things of the Lord. Right? Well, they, they don't care about that. They think, wow, I showed up at church. That's a wonderful thing I did. That'll count for something. I'm not quite as bad as that horrible person over there. That counts for something. They're not upset by those small failings that you know are sin and that grieve your soul. Faith will result in fruit. It will be evident in one's life. But it never becomes, the fruit never becomes the ground upon which we stand. To think that that's the thing that makes me worthy ultimately before God. Abram was a a great man of God. I take nothing from the man. But he was every bit as in need of God's grace as anybody else. He was every bit as in need of the offspring who would come ultimately from his line to die for his sins. The God who promised Abram the various blessings that we've just looked at is the same God who tells us that all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone are justified. Romans says, therefore, since we have peace with God. If you are trusting in Christ, you are at peace with God. And that is true now, and it'll be true forever. Did Christ die just for the sins of yesterday? Or did he die for your sins of tomorrow as well? Those sins that are coming might catch you off guard, might surprise you or some others, but they don't, they're not surprising the eternal God. And so we cannot presently see the new heavens and earth with our physical eyes. We can't see the return of Christ with our physical eyes. But the same God who called Abram and was faithful to Abram, and we can read of that as we continue to read the scriptures, is the same God that we place our faith in and trust in. The God who calls us is faithful. He will do the things he says to do. And we are not fools to lose our life in faith to that, in trusting him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the faithful God, that you can be trusted, you are to be trusted. You have to keep your word. Father, that's not testing you. That's, what, that's just what you have revealed of yourself. You are faithful. 
Father, surely you would not let the blood of your son be spilled in vain, but you will complete the work that you begin in your people. Father, I pray that you would help us to have our faith built up. That we might trust you in all things, whether tomorrow brings with it abundance and easy praises, or whether it brings sorrow and difficulty. And Father, we know there are some in sorrow and difficulty now, and we pray for faith to trust you, that come what may, you are good, that come what may in this, of this earthly life, we have eternal promises that cannot be taken away, even by something like death. They cannot be taken away by anyone who would seek to do harm. Father, I pray that you strengthen our faith and that you would cause by your Spirit much fruit to be born in us. Father, we lament where we see a lack of progress in our own hearts. And so we call out to you to strengthen us And to help us and to do your good work of sanctifying us. Father, we are needy for you and we are in your hands and we commit ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.